From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest for this episode is Emma Seppala, who is the author of The Happiness Track. She's also the science director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. She is also the founder and editor-in-chief of the popular news site, Fulfillment Daily. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about American culture and how it propagates burnout and overwork and the consequences of those aspects of our lives today. Misconceptions about success, how to cultivate internal resiliency, and a lifestyle that nurtures creativity and the importance and all that of compassion for yourself. So now, here is my conversation with Emma Seppala. Emma, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It is great to have you here. Uh, and um, can't wait to, to get into hearing how you got into this uh, into this into this field. Tell us a little bit about what, what led you to the work that you do. Honestly, I was working with some of the most brilliant minds um, at, at Stanford and Silicon Valley, uh, at Yale and other places, and I saw that we have this misconception that in order to be successful, you have to sacrifice uh, your happiness. Mm-hmm. And I, the result is that I was seeing a lot of burnout around me. I was seeing people who were successful in some ways, but burnt out in others, or, um, you know, highly anxious, really stressed, couldn't sleep. And when I looked at the Mm. research, the data, I thought we actually have it all wrong. If we take care of ourselves and our own happiness, we're actually, and that of those around us, which in turn makes us happier, um, that actually makes us more productive, more focused, more present, more charismatic, more creative, you name it, all of the things that we want. And so how did you go about formulating the ideas that, that you write so powerfully about in, in the happiness track? Well, I, re- I took six of the myths of success that we have out there and, um, and just turned them on their head. For example, we believe that we can't have success without stress. We, we think we absolutely need that anxiety to push us through deadlines mm-hmm. um, to make it through the day. Uh, and there's no doubt that a little bit of stress can certainly get you through a deadline. But the problem is that we live in overdrive at the moment. We live in a, a state of constant fight or flight, which mm-hmm. we know from research ends up taxing not just our health, physical health, but it actually impairs our attention, our memory, our emotional intelligence, our decision making. So we're actually, you know, by over caffeinating, over scheduling ourselves, sleeping too little, etc., um, actually harming our, our ability to be at our full potential. Right, the, uh, the the long-held uh, understanding about the uh, U-curve for stress is uh, mm-hmm. is is that you know, some is good because it motivates you, but too much burns you out. Right. People are just overwhelmed. 
in in our in our present day. Wh- what have you found to be the most significant stressor in today's work environment that is really harming not only people's health but their productivity? Well, honestly, many workplaces are just buying into this idea of more hours, work more, work harder, and you're going to be more productive. But if you look at some of the European countries, mm-hmm. they have less work hours than we do, and yet they're equally productive, if not more so. So that, that equation isn't actually real, and yet everyone buys into it. Everyone's buying into this idea that we have to overwork ourselves in order to be successful. Um, but we're seeing 50% burnout across industries in the U.S. It doesn't matter if you're working for a nonprofit, the medical field, the legal field. Um, we're seeing that 70% of the American workforce is disengaged, uh, we're, we're, and we're seeing that 80% of doctor's visits are due to stress. I mean, we're mm-hmm. faced with a problem. There's a problem here. There's a huge and, problem. So what's your take on the primary cause of this overwork, overwhelmed, overstressed American workforce? Well, it has a lot to do with our culture. So if you think about it, we are very, uh, very influenced by the Protestant work ethic, and also by an immigrant work ethic. So our ancestors hmm. were hardworking people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, especially if you if you come from abroad, it's kind of surprising at first because Americans, you meet them, you say hello, and then what do you say? You say, what do you what do? What do you do? It's all about what you're doing. Where that I tell, I'm from France originally. I have to tell you, that's not what people ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, what do they ask you? Where were you on your last vacation? It's mm-hmm. more likely, it's more of greater interest. Um, Who are you having dinner yeah. with? <laughs> exactly. But um, so it's very interesting. But of course, that that's what makes America so fantastically productive, innovative, etc. But if this is a, a, an incre- the work ethic is incredible. However, uh, when it comes to the point of of defining everything that you do and of um, impacting your health and even your productivity, then it's ironic, right? So actually, the way mm-hmm. we're going about working is paradoxical. backfiring. Correct. It's backfiring. And it's backfiring, and people are suffering from anxiety and depression at higher and higher levels. So if you look at the data, if we take care of ourselves, we actually will get the outcomes that we want. For example, creativity. CEOs across the board, one study showed value as their number one most desirable trait in an incoming workforce Uh-oh. is creativity. Above uh-huh. everything else is creativity. Of course, everybody's talking about innovating, disrupting, sure. and so forth. You need to be adaptive in this ever-changing, rapidly changing, way too fast evolving world. So you need to be exactly. creative. But exactly. But, but you can only be creative when your brain is in delta wave mode. Delta which, wave mode. Yeah, which means it's a time when you're idle. It's that space right before sleep. It's the proverbial idea that comes to you in the shower or when you're walking your dog, or when you're sitting in a traffic jam, it's when you let your mind wander. It's when you let yourself relax. But if you think about it, nowadays we're so focused on being productive that we don't even stand in the grocery line anymore and just space out. We don't even walk our dog without. All the time we have our cell phone on us. We're checking our email. We're doing something. We're constantly focused. Even in our idle time supposed idle time, we're on mm-hmm. Facebook, we're focusing on something, we're actually eliminating those moments in our life where we could come up with our most genius ideas. So that, so, But it's not just that, it's that we also don't take time off. So if you ask, mm-hmm. and most Americans, 91% check their email when they're on vacation. Mm-hmm. So, and mo, um, mo, 75% of Americans don't take all of their vacation days. And even of those who take their vacation days, they're checking their email. So, Well, I don't want to be having, seen as a slacker. 
Exactly. And coming from France, I have to tell you, we, here it's a shockingly little vacation. I mean, to think that you only need 10 days to recuperate from an entire year of work is, is quite, you know, quite shocking to someone coming from France, where, of course, vacation is all the time. But on the other hand, the fact that Americans don't feel comfortable actually taking those 10 mm-hmm. days is, again, a sign and then when they're taking them, are they on their phone? Are they, they yeah. the, the idea of unplugging, it, it just doesn't happen. So as a consequence, we're actually depriving ourselves of, of our utmost ability to be creative, for example. And there are other consequences as well that I, I, I know that you are uh, keen to, 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 to study and to somehow uh, change, right? What are some of the other um, important consequences, negative consequences of, of uh, our culture of overwork that you've observed? Well, one of the myths that we live by is that we have this idea that it's a dog-eat-dog world, sink or swim. That means look out for number one. Elbow people out of the way if you have to. You've just got to reach your goal. So that's the idea. But again, if you look at the research, those people who are more likely to help others and support them actually end up doing well, provided that they don't uh, let people take advantage of them, of course. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this research because it's out of, you know, Adam Grant has really... um, helped um, propagate it through his fantastic book, Give and Take. Mm -hmm. And um, again, what we're seeing is that uh, when you do look out for others, not only do you benefit professionally when you're supportive, when you're kind, but you create a workplace that is positive, the workplace culture that is positive, whether you're a colleague or a leader, a CEO of a company. And it actually benefits your happiness, but tremendously. I would say that looking at the happiness research across the board and a compassionate, pro-social attitude is the greatest predictor of long-term happiness, but also health and well-being down to the cellular mm-hmm. level. You'll have lower inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, a myth that's out there, and yet it's been proven wrong. And um, and actually having positive relationships with other people around you is tremendously beneficial for your happiness as well. Yes, of course. And uh, uh, most of the world's religions promote this idea, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the notion of Correct. karma, the, the golden rule, whatever you want to call it. We're, you know, we have to be reminded in our religious institutions to, to, to know what's been known for, you know, for millennia. Hi, this is Stu Friedman, and I hope you're enjoying this conversation. If you like our podcast work and life, I'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We've just recently begun to bring you conversations for free that were previously only available on my SiriusXM radio show, which I started back in 2014, to paid subscribers. So every rate and review helps us to advance our mission to share ideas for action that we hope are helpful to people interested in creating greater harmony among the different parts of life. Thank you, and now let's get back to the show. What are the uh, the important elements of uh, the happiness track that people can actually do something about Given the uh, intensity and uh, crazy-making nature of so many of our work environments, well, one thing that um, I, I want people to take away is that you can't do anything about the amount of stress, pressure that's coming at you. You can't do anything about the po- office politics necessarily that mm-hmm. you're involved with, and so forth. However, 
one thing you can, and of course you shouldn't do anything about your dreams and ambitions and goals that may require you to work very, very hard. But one thing you can do is you can boost your internal resilience and to ensure that you, your state of mind is very resilient, very strong. And in order to do that, it's taking care of that internal state of mind. So we spend most of our life focused outwardly. We're working, we're speaking to people and so forth. And, and yet, um, if we take care of that, of our nervous system and of our state of mind, we can actually sail through things without burning out as fast, with more emotional intelligence, with better decision-making, etc. What I mean, for example, to make things a little more concrete, so we talked a little bit about how we live in this constant state of fight or flight and this um, fast-paced life, uh, and, you know, whether, whether it's through over-caffeination or over-scheduling, etc., and yet we're also seeing that a lot of people are needing more and more to use anti-anxiety medication or sleep medications to then mm-hmm. relax at night because mm-hmm. we're so wired literally, which actually just means that we're in constant fight or flight mode. So one thing we've forgotten how to do is to tap into the other side of our nervous system, which is the rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. But if you look, for example, at animals in the wild or even little children, they have a stress response and within minutes, it's gone. So for example, they get chased by a predator in the wild. Within minutes, as soon as the predator is gone, they're back to grazing. They're relaxed completely. There's mm. a reason for that because the body can restore itself. Need to restore. Regain its energy so that then it can, boom, be ready when the next thing happens, right? How about us grown-ups working in, uh, in, in modern America? How do we do it? Well, I've worked with arguably some of the most stressed individuals in our society, uh, uh, veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with um, high levels of trauma. They're locked into a constant state of fight or flight as a very natural response to having been in a very, very dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I've learned a lot from them about what we can do. The study that we conducted was designed to help them tap into that parasympathetic nervous system, the opposite of the fight or flight, the rest and digest. And we used a very simple tool that we all have access to that taps right into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the breath. It sounds simple, but it's actually a very profound tool that we can use. Well, it's the essence of all meditation and Eastern religion is to just return to breath. Absolutely. But in this case, it actually changes how you feel in your state of mind because mm -hmm. we're changing the breathing. We're not just observing it. Mm. And so... I'm all about meditation, by the way. I think it's fantastic. But when there's a lot of stress in the system, when you're very anxious, it actually can be challenging to meditate at first. The breathing, when you uh, slow your breathing, when you deepen your breathing, you actually slow your heart rate and your blood pressure in in minutes. So you can very quickly start to calm your nervous system down. And as you do that, your mind starts to settle down. And as that happens, you can think more clearly. You can conserve your energy rather than burning out. And in the moment, you can regain your state of your presence of mind. And in particular, when we breathe in, our heart rate accelerates. And when we breathe out, it decelerates. Mm-hmm. So I always say breathe deeper, breathe longer, and slow your exhales. Lengthen your exhale. Mm-hmm. So the longer you exhale, the more you're tapping into that parasympathetic nervous system. You could do this in a board meeting. You can do this in mm-hmm. an interview. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Yes, it's, a very, um, it's invisible. It's a simple tool, but profound. Yeah, profound. In what, that. And with the, what kind of impact has, do you see when people start to practice, uh, uh, not just an awareness, but a change in the, the mm-hmm. pace and depth of their breathing? I've gotten a lot of great feedback since writing the book, uh, since writing the happiness track about people who've implemented it, including my agent, who, believe it or not, um, 
He's a fast-paced New Yorker and uh, represents a lot of uh, authors. And he said, you know, ever since reading your book, I've been doing the exercise that I talk about in the book, you know, 15 minutes a day. And he's like, I can't believe how much better I feel. So I was very surprised because he had absolutely no reason to, you know, try it. And he did. And um, But I practice I practice breathing now every single day, um, you know, for years, especially after seeing what happened with the veterans. I said, if we can help them, it can certainly help the rest of us. And I wanted to share that. And, of course, meditation is another fantastic way to do that, um, and it's very complimentary. So how does one start? With the breathing practice? Yeah. Yeah. So um, actually, even if you just um, sit wherever you're sitting and you have your eyes closed and relax, you can breathe in for a count of four, hold for a count of four, and then breathe out for a count of eight. So you're kind of creating that long exhale. You can hold for a count of, you know, one or two, and then you can do that over again. So kind of four, breathing in for four, holding for four, and then exhale for eight. And then just, you know, count it at the pace that feels most comfortable for your body. And um, you can just start with five minutes that you can do uh, in the morning to start to set up your day. It really doesn't take a lot of time. But also at midday or whenever you're feeling tired, you know, whenever you want to reach for that coffee or whenever you want to. You know, a lot of people think they're taking a break when they're going on Facebook or doing some, doing something on the Internet. It actually is another focused task that takes mm-hmm. energy from you, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, much better to um, stop focusing outwardly, close your eyes, and allow yourself to fuel up just as you would charge your cell phone. Fuel up, that's a good phrase because it, it really helps uh, in the analogy to, uh, you know, for people to understand that, you know, when you run out of gas, you actually can't move. Absolutely right. correct. So, it, so, so you need to have that fuel. Uh, but in the pressures of, of everyday life, and of course one, one's mind starts to wander, that's typical, especially when you first start a practice like this, mm-hmm. um, how, do you, how do you sort of sustain the effort so that you start to develop uh, a real competence at being able to rest and digest? Absolutely. At first, for many people, uh, starting to relax, can seem um, challenging, especially with meditation. It can actually make you feel more anxious. Not that it's making you feel more anxious. It's that it's making you aware of how anxious you are because Mm -hmm. of constantly being in that fight or flight. And when you first start meditating, for example, you become very aware of your internal state for the first time maybe, and it can be a little alarming. Um, That's why I'd like to start with the breathing. So don't even pay attention to anything except that you're, you know, follow the instructions for the breathing. Mm-hmm. And then as you do that, um, you'll start to settle down because your nervous system settles down. And we are such cognitively driven people. We believe everything starts in the brain, that we can change how we think with our thoughts. But again, if you look at the research, it's very difficult to change your thoughts with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's as if you were working with one muscle to try and change that same muscle, if that makes sense. So, you know, for example, if you're... Um, if you're a little bit anxious or a little bit angry, maybe you can talk yourself out of it. But think of the day when you're really anxious or really angry. How easy is it for yourself for you to talk yourself out of that state? Or even worse, if someone else shows up and is like, hey, calm down. <laughs> that doesn't help either. Um, and so that's where it's really useful to be able to just tap right into your nervous system itself. And as that starts to settle, you start to settle. Your mind starts to become clearer. So a constant push to do and be focused on tasks that require uh, your full attention uh, is, is ultimately going to... It may work for a while, but it's not sustainable. Um, yeah. So, 
Well, that's and the, but the thing is, we have to do it, right? And so, uh, what's the best way to set up your day? And if you look at the research, the best way for you to have an even amount of energy throughout the entire day, mm-hmm. rather than to go, 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 and then burn out by 2 p.m., is to um, alternate tasks during the day that are high intensity versus mm-hmm. low intensity. For example, you have a presentation to put together in the morning. You do that for an hour. You give it your utmost attention. And then in the next hour, don't do another high-intensity activity. In the next hour, do something that entering data, clearing up your desk, going through your mail, things that are a little bit less high-intensity. And that actually allows you not only to rest, but it allows you to then access that creative, creative creativity mode mm-hmm. so that when you go back to the presentation or you go to your next intense task, you're sandwiching intense tasks, intensely intellectual, I would say, tasks with a low intellectual task and back and forth, you're able to both manage your energy so it's more steady throughout the day, but also allow that creativity mm-hmm. muscle to kind of, um, uh, uh, that creativity um, kind of side of yourself uh, emerge more more easily. We only have another minute or so, uh, and I, uh, there's so much more I want to ask you about, but l- let me just ask you one more question here before we have to wrap, and that is um, about self-compassion, which you, you write mm-hmm. and talk yeah. about. You know, I, I ask people all the time to assess uh, how important the different parts of their lives are to them and where they devote their attention. And I ask them to look at work, home, community, and the private self, mind, body, and spirit, being that bundle of you know the, the private world of the self. So I ask them to identify how much of their attention on an average week they're devoting to each of the, these four domains. And, of course, the self-domain is almost always the lowest and valued the lowest as well. Uh, One of the really important ideas in the happiness track, as as I take it, is this notion of self-compassion. What's the the essence of that idea and and how to enact it, Emma? Great question. And again, we're looking at resilience here. We all want to be more resilient. Um, And yet, many of us also believe that self-criticism is essential for self-development. And and yet, if you look at the data, self-criticism is basically equivalent to self-sabotage. It makes you less resilient in the face of challenge. It makes you less likely to learn from your mistakes, and it makes you more anxious and depressed in the face of failure. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're in business, if you're an entrepreneur, whatever you want to do, you're going to face failure. We all do. So self-criticism actually is not going to help you. Um, It's it's, it's not your friend, but self-compassion, on the other hand, sounds soft, but there's a lot of hard data to back it up. Makes you more resilient, more able to learn from your mistakes and grow from them. It also hmm. makes you have better relationships with other people. It has a, a, a huge number of benefits. And the way that I think about it is think about if you were running a marathon. It's your first marathon. You're running it, and you trip and fall. And someone on the sideline says, you're such a loser. What are you even doing here? There's no way that you're not a runner. Like, you're never going to finish this. You should hmm. walk, go home, right? Think about how you would feel. And then another person on the other side says, Everybody falls. It's no big deal. This mm-hmm. is what happens. Just get right back up. You can do this. So you so, kind of see. The so normalizing normalizing failure and and, uh, yeah. and and obstacles along the path of of trying to get something meaningful to happen in your world uh, that really helps people to 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 be resilient and to persist in the face of adversity. Yes, treating yourself as you would treat your best friend. You would not, if your best friend failed or, or, or made a mistake or anything like that, you would never say the kind of words that you might have said to yourself. And 
So again, it's learning to, in a sense, um, befriend yourself. Um, and that will actually make you more resilient, more successful, and, and, and a host of other things. That's an idea that uh, that many people would benefit from spending just a little bit more time thinking about and bringing to life in their everyday worlds. Uh, as as there are many other such ideas in uh, in Emma's great new book. Uh, so what what's the the final word here, Emma? What's what's the main uh, big idea that you want to make sure our listeners take away from what you've discovered so far in your research and practice? Well, if you want to be successful. Um, it really behooves you to um, take good care of yourself and take really good care of the people around you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Emma Seppala. Stress seems to be an inevitable part of, of our lives these days. And what, what Emma Seppala and others, of course, uh, that we've had on the show have to tell us uh, is that it is possible to build resiliency and a resistance to these pressures. And it begins with taking care of yourself and having compassion uh, for yourself so that you can maintain uh, a way of responding to the daily stresses and strains that confront us all. It doesn't have to be a lot of uh, investment of time and energy, but it does require some focus to look within and to invest in yourself, even if just in small amounts. It can go a long way towards helping you to have the capacity to create a bit more harmony in your world and to integrate better your work with your home, your community, and your own private needs for your mind, body, and spirit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. <music>